Amen. Amen. You can be seated tonight. Thank you, worship team. Shout out to Jamal, my man. First time on worship tonight. Thank you, Dom, as well. But I also got to give some shout outs. Maybe, again, welcome if you're here. Welcome if you're online. Maybe you're looking up here like, that. I, that's not Pastor Fred. It is not Pastor Fred. I am uh, Pastor Justin. I'm another pastor here. Uh, somebody was also looking for Pastor Vanessa, and they were like, where is she? They're They've escaped together, right? In a good way, right, right, in a good way. They are off on an adventure together. How many of you know we don't just need to honor them? They're not just do our, our honor and our thanks and our gratitude. Every once in a while, they'll do some time away so they can rejuvenate, refresh. And they're not just doing it for any reason. It is Pastor Vanessa's birthday. So if you have her number, you can text her now. If you're looking at your phone, I ain't gonna sweat it because I know you're texting her. You can give her a shout out on Facebook. Let's just show her all the love in the world because this church would not be what it is without her. And the work that her and Pastor Fred put in day by day, week by week, year by year throughout the history of this church. So Vanessa, I hope you're not watching. I hope y'all are resting and relaxing. If you are, happy birthday to you. But, uh, you know, I, I, I got to anesthetize my conscience before preaching. I got to preach from a clean conscience and I got to confess something tonight. And and maybe it won't seem like a big deal to you, but I have a a ceiling fan in my living room that's made for three light bulbs. And right now it's only got one light bulb that's working in it. Maybe you think like, well, that sounds like a personal problem. Why don't you just fix it? Well, here's the thing. And maybe you can relate. Things never break when you have time on your hands. Like, think about it. Murphy's Law, I have never heard of anybody tell me, like, their, your fire alarm when the battery dies and it starts just shrieking. It's never at 2 or 3 in the afternoon. It's always 2 or 3 in the morning when I'm like, Lord, do not let Raj wake up, and I'm sprinting into the hallway. Things never break when you have the time. The last light bulb that went out in this ceiling fan it was when I was unloading a car from a trip we had just gone on. All the luggage I'm carrying in, I'm like, well, I'll get to it soon. And maybe you're thinking, what's the big deal? I didn't get to it soon. That was like well over a month ago. And the thing is, I've gotten so used to living in this dim lighting that I I totally forgot that the bulbs were even out until I went to draw this week. I'm like, I can't even see. I've gotten so used to like just living in this dim living room. And I share this seeming randomness because we're called to be light, right? That points to Jesus, that points to the glory of God's grace. And yet so often we're dimmer than we should be. And it's not for lack of belief. We probably believe the right things, but life is busy. <laughs> and life itself is so busy that so often what we remember on the weekends doesn't make into like the living room of our lives, our life Monday through Friday. And so we live dim. We just get used to it. Right? We're in this series, Doxa, because we want to turn the light back up. We want to be better lights that reveal God's glory to the world around us. The, the, the tagline for this series is we want to unlock glorious living. And in our goal of unlocking this glorious living, we've been diving into and unpacking seven core Christian beliefs. And each week we're asking the question, how does this belief instruct the way that I live? Am I building my life, as we just sang, on this belief? And so far in this series, we've looked at God is one. The Bible is true. Mankind is helpless. Eternity is real. The church is central. Next week, we're going to close it out with Jesus's life. That sounds like it's going to be a good one. And tonight is the cross is enough. And again, each week, 
We're not going to spend a whole lot of time on, on the teaching side. This is a teaching pulpit, so yeah, we're going to go there. But this series is not about apologetics. If you want resources about one belief or the other, man, we can absolutely recommend a book, a podcast, resources on each one of these beliefs if you want it. But our desire in this series, Doxa, is to go deeper than mental ascent or head knowledge. Right, our desire is that we would all ask the question weekly, how is this belief instructing the way I live? Because the root of the word doxa, the root of the word is to think, to consider, to imagine. So yeah, we're, we're talking about belief, but we're not stopping at mental ascent because the word doxa is the Greek word for glory. It means splendor, grandeur, honor. It's used in the Bible to talk about the revealed presence of God. And from this Greek, we get words like doctrine, orthodox, orthodoxy, and alike. It speaks to right beliefs. See, creeds and lists of beliefs are good. The band, eh. but creeds and lists of beliefs are good. The Nicene Creed is famous for the foundational doctrines within it. But here's the thing, your deeds will speak louder than any creed. No matter how loud you shout your beliefs for the world, what you do says more to the world about who you are and more importantly, who the God you worship is. See, orthodoxy and right belief is good. But one step past this is orthopraxy, which is right practice, right behavior, right habits. And see, the thing is, orthodoxy without orthopraxy, it's not really following Christ. It's not really Christianity. It's like a college course. We're just doing a Bible study here. We need to be walking it out. Those beliefs that, that take root like those plants in David's yard, they better bear some fruit in your life. For example, many of us believe that Easter happened. We just celebrated it a couple weeks ago, right? The Nicene Creed, again, speaks to the fact that we believe he suffered, he cr was crucified, was buried, and rose again on the third day. We believe this, that the cross purchased our salvation purchased reconciliation with the Father, it bridged the gap for us. But often the events of Easter don't have an abiding significance in our day-to-day -day life like they should. I mean, typically by now, we're what, two weeks out of Easter? We're back to striving. We're back to trying to earn something we never purchased in the first place. It's already been bought. Tonight we're going to ask the question tied to Easter. How does my belief that the cross was enough, that the cross is enough, affect the way that I live daily. Now for one, hear this, we don't work for victory, right? we work from it. Right? Victory was won at the cross over death and the grave and sin, and that means that Jesus paid it all. Right? Just like the song said, he paid it all, it was all sufficient. He didn't, when the, when the waitress came to, to, for the checks, he didn't say two separate checks. No, he said, I got this, one tab, I'm paying for it, right? The cross, is the all-sufficient sacrifice. The cross saved us, and listen, the work of the cross sustains us. I think sometimes we can think, yeah, the cross solved some problem 2,000 years ago, and, and now I gotta get my life right in light of that. No, 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 the grace that flows from the cross, it, it saves us and it sustains us. Jesus is both salvation and life. Salvation and life. But we like to slide other elements into the equation. Our efforts, our works, but it's not Jesus plus equals salvation or life. Jesus plus nothing equals salvation and life. The cross is enough. But I don't want to assume either that all of us are familiar with the cross. Let's take a moment just to think about it. 
See, the cross is one of the worst devices of pain in really the history of mankind. Our word, our very word that we use, excruciating, that we use to describe uh, uh, immense pain, like a 10 on a scale of one to 10, it literally means out of crucifying. See, crucifixion, it was intentionally inhumane. Its very purpose was to strip someone of their humanity, right? To strip them, to mutilate them, to dishonor them. It was done gruesomely, it was done in public, so that the Roman Empire could remind people, hey, this is what happens if you rebel. And the Roman Empire crucified so many people, they had it down to a science. They had public locations set up, like Golgotha outside of Jerusalem, where they would do these public executions. And, and, and they would have the, the vertical post that you see on the cross was often already set up, just waiting for that person to be crucified on it. And the one being crucified after being whipped and scourged would often have to carry that horizontal beam to the site of crucifixion. I mean, they even had specialized teams set up at these locations to oversee the executions. I mean, as I studied it this week, it, it reads like, like the horror genre. It's terrifying. And yet fast forward, what's wild is that this symbol of torture and, and, and stripping people of their humanity, it decorates our churches. Right? It's everywhere. There is a cross less than a mile from my home on a hill, not unlike this stage, honestly, floodlights all up on it. It's at least 15 feet high, a giant white cross. If it weren't for what Jesus did on the cross, that would be weird, <laughs> intimidating, morbid. Like, what is that all about? Like, think about this. I've worn this cross for years and years now, decades. It was given to me by a, a friend of mine, his mom in high school. See, my mom wasn't the only one praying for me. I was such a big knucklehead in high school. My friend's moms were like, here, take this, wear this, right? It's got the 14 stations of the cross on the back and then on the front, Jesus used to be on it. And I say used to because a few years ago for the first time, Jesus' left arm came off, started snagging my clothes. So I super glued it back down. And then like, Less than a year ago, both arms popped off, and like Jesus is coming off the cross, and I get the super glue out, and I'm about to super glue him back down. I'm like, this seems backwards. <laughs> Please don't strike me with lightning, right? Because in reality, Jesus didn't stay on the cross. Man, Jesus didn't even stay in the grave. He, he resurrected. It's Galatians 2.20 says, we've been crucified with Christ, but we can't forget, like Ephesians 2 says, we've been made alive with Christ. That same passage in Ephesians doesn't say that we were raised up and united with him on the cross. It says we were raised up and seated with him in heavenly realms. That's powerful. We got to remember what came after his death. Jesus didn't stay on the cross, didn't stay in the grave. He resurrected. And yet when you read scripture, you can't get around the cross. In fact, Paul says to the church in Corinth that when he was with them, all he preached was Christ and the cross, Christ and him crucified. Paul said, I'm not going to boast in anything but the cross. Why? He says in Colossians 1.20 that through Jesus, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth. How? By means of Christ's blood on the cross. The author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 10.14 that by one offering, Jesus made perfect those who are being made holy. And Peter takes it a step further. In 1 Peter 3.18, it says Christ suffered for our sins once for all time. Once for all time. That's why Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished, not I did my part. Now, what does this mean for you tonight and every day moving forward? It means there's nothing you can do to make God love you less, and there's nothing you can do to make God love you more. 
You know, I tell Raj this regularly, and I hope he hears it and heeds it. He's five years old, but we adopted him when he was two, and he's still learning to be a little more verbal. And, and I tell him every night, man, I love you. There's nothing you can do that's going to make me love you less. There's nothing you can do that's going to make me love you more. Because my son, really, every one of our kids, every one of our children needs to know that they're secure in our love. Rest assured in our love, especially my son. The last thing Raj needs with his background is a Jekyll and Hyde father that's supportive and loving one day and distant and critical the next. He's loved no matter what because he didn't earn my love to begin with. Whether it's a moment I'm delighting in him and high-fiving him or I'm disciplining him. Whether it's a good day or a bad day, my love for him is the same. And I'm a pitiful father compared to our heavenly father. How much more consistent is he? How much more faithful is he? God is not moody. Right? He doesn't change with the seasons. He has one relentless posture towards me and you, and that is love <laughs> drenched in grace. We don't live in a house of fear. We live in a house of unmerited grace and unconditional love, which means tonight you are secure in that. You are not your recent performance as a husband or a father or a mother. You aren't your worst moments. You are not your latest job review, your latest report card. You are not the condition of your parenting this past week. No, you are secure in God's love. There's nothing you can do to make him love you more. There's nothing you can do to make him love you less. We simply respond. And this week I thought back to when I first responded to this love of God. It was at the church that planted City Life Church, a Christian Life Center in Williamsburg. It was October 10th of 2005. I was a senior at William & Mary, and a girl invited me out to church. Don't missionary date, but missionary inviting sometimes works. <laughs> and uh, I remember going back to my dorm room afterwards. I had a, a Bible. My parents had given it to me when I was like 16. But it was kind of like, you know, the Gideon's Bibles in the hotel rooms where they're just in the top drawer of the, the dresser. It had just been in the top drawer of my desk for four years. This was the first time I'd taken it out. And, and, and normally now when people come to me like, where should I start? I always point them to the Gospels, right? Start with Jesus. That's what the whole Bible is about. Everything's pointed to Jesus, so you might as well start there. But maybe it was pride because my parents raised me in church. Like, I know what goes on in the Gospels. And apparently I just mixed, missed Acts entirely because I turned to the right until I got to Romans. And I started reading. And honestly, it was a beautiful thing because for my money in Romans, you get the best picture of the gospel of grace. It's extensive. It's detailed. It's, it's Paul outlining the grace of Jesus Christ. And, and I was a senior about to graduate as an English major at William & Mary. So as it's blowing my mind, I'm making an outline. <laughs> this is the outline of Romans. And, and, and I've probably still got it in a journal somewhere, but I can remember section one would include Romans one through four. Justification by grace through faith. Salvation by grace through faith. Now, Romans 3.23 is the famous one we probably all heard where all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But for our purposes tonight, Romans 3.25 is crucial. Romans 3.25 says God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. Can we boast then? that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, it's based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. We, each one of us, all of us fallen, all of us sinners are saved by grace alone through faith alone, not by works, 
Not by getting my life right so that I can come to Christ. Now, this is where we see once again in Scripture, the cross is enough. But like this series, Doxa, I love it. Paul isn't just trying to present apologetics. He too would ask, okay, how does this belief that the cross is enough affect the way that I live? And the next section of the Romans outline, you could, you could mark as chapters five through eight, which helps us dig into that question tonight. It's about the assurance of God's radical grace. And Paul recognizes that God's glorious grace kind of has the scent of, of scandal to it. Some theologians have even said that this, this, this promise of grace in advance is, is quote unquote dangerous. And Paul realizes this. He anticipates and addresses some of the responses that we might have to God's grace. Because yes, God's grace is beautiful, but a misunderstanding of the implications of that grace can derail our very lives. The belief that the cross is enough could adversely affect the way we live when we apply it in two ways. One, use it as a loophole to keep on sinning. And two, use legalism to plug what seem like loopholes. Now what am I talking about with, with a loophole? Well, if the cross is enough, if nothing I do affects God's love and his posture of grace and love towards me, then can I just do anything, right? You know, I heard a story recently about a guy who found a loophole. It wasn't in the Bible. It was in the, the Constitution. His name was Mike Balderain. Self-proclaimed tough guy, said he got in a lot of fights with people. He was an angry individual, but his therapy, he said, was to hunt elk. And he lived in Montana, which is good for him because elk are everywhere up there. But he lived on the, on the, basically on the border of Yellowstone and the border of Idaho. And one December, I think it was 2005, he's out on his horse in the snow and he's ridden to the, the side of basically the border of Yellowstone Park. He's looking into Yellowstone Park and he sees these elk come into the clearing. And he sees what he called like the bull he had been waiting for his entire life. It was like his white whale, right? The, the one he had been waiting for. And he was both excited and pretty terrified because to shoot it would have been illegal. Not only was it not hunting season, but to hunt inside of Yellowstone is, is a federal offense. So this guy, with this description we know of him, he's like, all right, I'll just shoot it in the shoulder so that it'll go into the bushes and then I can deal with it over there. <laughs> but what happened was he missed and hit it in the head. And so it fell right there in the middle of this giant clearing where anybody could see it. Anybody who heard it could look over and see that this elk had just been illegally killed. So he ran to, to get the horns in the head and he took off and he got caught. But what he didn't realize is he had kind of committed the perfect crime because he was standing one of the only spots in the country where the law Technically, according to the letter of the law, couldn't touch him. You could get away with not just hunting elk. Technically, according to the letter of the law, you'd get away with murder. Because inside this 50 square mile zone in Idaho where he was standing, it would be unconditional, or excuse me, unconstitutional to form a jury according to the sixth, sixth I almost said commandment. I'm straight biblical here. Sixth amendment, sorry. The sixth amendment is about local juries, a jury of your peers, right, from your from your region. And see, Yellowstone is a federal district that is over three different states. It was made before the states were even there. So there's this section of Yellowstone and Idaho where literally zero people live. And technically, according to the letter of the law, you couldn't be tried because they couldn't form a jury. So this is literally what Mike's defense built their defense on in court, this loophole that was in the Constitution. 
You know, it, it, we talk about the Constitution like it's a perfected, finished product. We, we borderline mythologize it. There are lawyers that spend their entire life studying this document, that write entire dissertations about like the placement of punctuation within this document. And yet within the document, we still find that there are loopholes. And I share this because we clearly hold the Bible dearly. We study it our entire lives. I read this thing every day. I'm going to do it for the rest of my life. And we seek to apply it. Because as Fred preached just weeks ago, we believe it's true. That it's the word of God given to us. And within this book is this explosive belief that the cross is enough, that it's all sufficient, that it opens up the floodgates of God's grace to everyone. And it sure seems to set up a loophole that the Bible has to address repeatedly. And Paul himself addresses in his letter to the Romans. He does it in Romans 6. See, in Romans 5, Paul points again to the work of the cross. It's where we get the beautiful scripture I say all the time. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. And at the end of Romans 5, Paul says, as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. So Paul starts Romans 6 with the rhetorical question, what shall we say then? Should we keep on sinning so that God can show us more and more of his wonderful grace? And he asks a similar question later in the same chapter. Since the cross, right, since God's grace has set us free from the law, does that mean we can go on sinning? Again, if, if nothing I do can earn my salvation, can't I just go on and do anything and receive grace along the way? Now, Paul replies to each of these hypothetical questions with essentially in the Greek, heck no, of course not, by no means. In the King James, God forbid. But what Paul is anticipating with these rhetorical questions is the potential for grace abuse. Grace mishandled that says, hey, if I'm saved by faith alone, then obedience sure seems optional. Because like when you look at the cross and the finished work of the cross and Jesus was on the cross, he said, it is finished. But right before that, you had a lifelong criminal, right? This thief in his last dying breaths professed faith in Jesus and he punched his ticket to heaven. And we think, sounds like a decent plan. So sure, repentance is still a factor. We still anticipate it, but we just kick it down the road a little bit, right? Sin now, repent later. The rapper Jay-Z once said, we formed a new religion. No sin if there's permission. That might sound crazy at first, but for so many people, grace becomes that permission. A mishandled grace transforms a healthy, God will forgive what I've done into a premeditated, God will forgive what I'm about to do. Sin now, Repent later. And if I'm honest, I've seen it played out more times than I'd like. And what you see played out again and again is that the sin you're clinging to when you rationalize that sin, you're still clinging to it in the exact same way when you would have anticipated repenting of it. Because after a while, you cling to sin long enough, it starts to cling to you. And this isn't some new perspective or new problem that Jay-Z introduced. No, in Jude 1.4, it says, Some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. I mean, we get a picture of this marvelous grace in the Gospels, right? When the woman caught in adultery is brought before Jesus and like, hey, should we stone her? And Jesus, you know, at the end, he says, neither do I condemn you. And we hold this up as a, a beautiful picture of God's marvelous grace and the grace of Jesus. But I think sometimes we forget what he says in his very next breath. Now go and sin no more. Yeah, the good news is that while we were still sinners, caught in our sin, like this woman, before we were even caught, Jesus died for us. 
but it doesn't have the same vibe if he leaves us there. You know, I love the message version of Paul's first verses of Romans 6. He says, so what do we do? Keep on sinning so that God can keep on forgiving? I should hope not. If we've left the country where sin is sovereign, how can we still live in our old house there? Or didn't you realize we packed up and left there for good? So you can't truly, fully accept grace and still make a home with sin. You might struggle with it the rest of your life, but we don't make a home amidst it. True repentance means moving out. And and when we take this word picture a step further and we look at the country we move into and embrace grace, we realize there's still commands to adhere to. But this is where our discussion of the cross enough, we see it easily drift into legalism. Now, legalism is an overused word these days where if you ask a different person what's legalism, you might get a different answer. But tonight, in light of the cross being enough, let's define legalism as any attempt to add to the finished work of the cross, usually with extra rules and regulations. See, legalism says, man, this whole grace thing is downright scandalous. All right, legalists see the proverbial elk hunters and the like potentially getting off the hook without payment for their sins, and they think this has got to be some kind of loophole that needs fixing. We have to patch up these weak spots before they're exposed, and God looks foolish. You know, these are like our amendments to the Bible to, to, to patch up some areas that we're concerned God overlooked. You know, our Constitution, for instance, has 27 ratified amendments. But you look at what the religious leaders of Jesus' day did with the Torah. They added some 613 right, laws and, and details to adhere to strictly. How? Like, why? What, what even? Well, we ourselves are naturally drawn to legalism for two big reasons. One, it offers a method of measurement. And two, it offers a feeling of superiority. Because once you start measuring what you're doing, you start sizing yourself up with what that person over there is doing, then you kind of slide into self-righteousness. See, this is how I know when I've drifted into legalism. And I'm probably just preaching to myself, you probably never struggle with this, is I look down on people. Because after all, look, look at how I got my life right. I'm checking all these boxes. Look at what I'm doing, right? Legalism, legalism fills me with self-righteousness like that. Because it, it's not just about rules for others and applied to others. Legalism is the idea that I can satisfy God by obeying laws through my good works. And Paul says in Romans that this was the biggest problem and what kept Israel from coming to Christ. You could contend that Romans third Roman numeral is in its in, in this outline is chapters 9 through 11, where it deals with the problem of Israel, Israel's problem. And maybe you say, what's the problem? Well, they were clinging to the law to the point that they couldn't come clean and truly take grasp of God's grace. Paul says in Romans 9 that the Gentiles, right, the non-Jews, were not trying to follow God's standards, yet they were made right with God. And it was by faith that this took place. But the people of Israel who tried so hard to get right with God by keeping the law never succeeded. Why not? Because they were trying to get right with God by keeping the law instead of by trusting him. Then he goes on to say at the start of Romans 10, the longing of my heart and my prayer to God is for the people of Israel to be saved. I know what enthusiasm they have for God, but it is a misdirected zeal. For they don't understand God's way of making people right with himself. Refusing to accept God's way, they cling to their own way of getting right with God by trying to keep the law. 
For Christ has already accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. As a result, all who believe in him are made right with God. Paul's saying yet another way. The cross is enough. The cross took care of and accomplished the purpose for which the law was given. And it was a good purpose. Right? See, legalism today has often become synonymous with laws are bad. Right? Organized religion, bad. After all, we're led by the spirit now, so universally legislated practices or, or, or boundaries, bad. But we forget that the, the Holy Spirit wasn't given by God to guide us in our, in our feelings alone, right? Jesus didn't say that the, the spirit of, of feels comes and he will guide you in your feels. No, he said the spirit of truth is going to come and he will guide us in all truth. But legalism, again, as a, as a term in our day, has often come to be defined as the legislation of any Christian truth or law. But Jesus said he didn't come to abolish the law. Why? Because the law isn't bad. Paul says in Romans 7, the problem isn't with the law, for it's spiritual and good. Paul's problem here in Romans, and Paul's problem in letters like Galatians that focus on legalism, it's not with moral law or, or adherence and obedience. His beef was with these moral laws and adherence to these rules that had supplanted the sufficiency of Jesus Christ, the sufficiency of the cross. No longer was the cross enough. No, 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 no. it had to be the cross and circumcision. It had to be the cross and these dietary laws or the cross and check this box over here and then it's enough. And again, so often we too drift into this checking of boxes because it's a means of measurement or measuring up, not just to God, but with other people. Often people we look down on. And this is exactly what made Jesus' ministry so confusing to the Pharisees. Because he came and spent time with, ate with, and ministered to all the people they were looking down on. <laughs> and when they confront him on this, he says in Mark 2, look, I didn't come for, for, for the healthy or the people that think they got it all together. I, I came for the sick. And he goes on to say to these priests and elders in Matthew 21, verse 31, sometime later, he says, I tell you the truth. Corrupt tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of heaven before you do. How could he say this? Jesus said it was because they'd heard and responded to both John the Baptist and, and we know himself, not with works, but with simple faith and belief. Repentance by grace through faith. The Pharisees were so focused on boasting in their works, they didn't see the need to repent. And they, 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 Jesus said they would see tax collectors and prostitutes getting into heaven before them. You got to think, they see this happening. With, with these people with all their unchecked boxes getting into heaven, this is some kind of loophole. <laughs> but the loophole, if you want to call it that, is grace. And this grace is for all. The deathbed convert, the lifelong addict, the tax collector and the prostitute, all it takes is repentance by grace through faith. God doesn't ask us to fix this seeming loophole. He asks us to embrace it. How? <laughs> Jesus says how we embrace the kingdom is like children. Children haven't done anything. They don't have anything to buy it with. They can, they can stake no claim. Right? They simply come. Think about the song we learn as kids. Right? Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? The Bible told me so. Right? We just know Jesus, Jesus loves me. But legalism complicates things, and as we grow older, it, it adds things to the point where we, don't, we no longer know. The song kind of goes like, Jesus loves me, I think, because we've complicated things. You know, another way I know personally that I've drifted into legalism in my life is, man, let me tell you, one of these days, 
like today, <laughs> that goes haywire from the jump. Like Raj wakes up crazy early or comes home from school sick or there's, there's a phone call and a bunch of reactionary ministry to where I don't get the time in the word or prayer that I want to. You know, it's a self-imposed discipline. But, but at the end of the day, right, I look back and I'm like, man, I didn't, I didn't read my word. I didn't pray. And there's this whisper like in the back of my head, like you screwed up. God's looking at you differently. He's not pleased. And that's when I, you know those, those voices you don't have to listen to? You can sometimes tell them to shut up. <laughs> because that voice, it's distorted the gospel. It's fallen into legalism. It, it's forgotten that the cross is enough, right? Does time in God's word and prayer, does that help me draw close to Jesus? <laughs> yes. But my discipline doesn't make me acceptable to God. Jesus does. And, and the cross was enough when the day started. And the cross is enough when the day ends. We simply respond. But ultimately, you spend enough time living legalistically like this and you realize to cling to legalism is to subscribe to shame because you will always come up short. To let go of legalism, to let go of your own stubborn shame and embrace grace again is to let go of that weight you've created and take back up the yoke that Jesus says is easy and is light. But to close, right? how, how else does the cross is enough affect the way we live daily? How does this play out ultimately in, in the book of Romans? Well, you can say that the last part, the fourth Roman numeral of the Romans outline is about Christian conduct, the way grace transforms us, our actions. See, starting in Romans 12, Paul notably pivots from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, from right belief, he starts talking about right behavior, from generosity to leadership to loving our neighbor to citizenship, all the way down to paying your taxes are things that he talks about here at the end of Romans. And Romans 12, at the beginning of this section where you notice the pivot, it begins with that famous, oft-quoted uh, passage, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where it talks about our, our worship being offering our lives as a living act of sacrifice to God. I love the message version because it says, take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work, and walking around life, and place it before God as an offering. Paul realizes just like we're attempting to drive home with this series, all of our head knowledge, all of our beliefs, they better affect the way you live in your everyday, ordinary, going to work, walking around life. It should be a living sacrifice. And we see in the Gospels that Jesus anticipates that, that our living sacrifice is going to look a little bit like his. He says, if you're going to follow me, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. And if I got the worship team come up, maybe uh, this makes you throw a yellow flag, <laughs> call time out. Like we just spent all evening talking about how the cross is enough. Why would I need to carry my own? But let's go full circle <laughs> and remember what crucifixion often looked like. Again, in the paintings we, 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 we paint in the movies, we often portray Jesus as carrying the, the horizontal and the vertical beam. But so often, the vertical beam was already set up, right, at Golgotha where he was headed. Most likely, he was carrying the horizontal beam. So when Simon of Cyrene, as we know, came in to, to help him and carry this, what he was carrying was the horizontal beam of the cross. And I share this because so it is with us, with me and with you. Jesus has taken care of the vertical beam. Jesus has taken care of vertical reconciliation with God the Father. We don't carry our cross to earn some approval. 
Jesus doesn't tell you to carry your cross so you can somehow earn salvation or earn God's love. That was already purchased at the cross of Jesus Christ. Vertical reconciliation with God the Father. But we're still called to carry a cross. And it's the part of the cross that people in Jesus' day would have carried, the, the transverse or horizontal beam. Because we're called to labor horizontally, to love our neighbor, to seek reconciliation. Or as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 to the church in Corinth, be ministers of reconciliation in in this world of of division. Doesn't take much looking around to see the division. Look at the week we just had in our nation. So much death, so much division, injustice, tragedy, brothers and sisters hurting. When that discomfort hits you, let it hit you. Let it sit for a minute. I've talked with brothers and sisters this week who are lamenting, angry, and I tell them, look, that's absolutely not a bad thing because when we lament, when we feel anger in seasons like this, it's tied to our hope because what we're realizing, it's not supposed to be like this. God didn't create for this. Heaven's not going to be like this. And that's why we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Where there's perfect peace, let there be perfect peace here. Where there's perfect reconciliation, let it be here. Where there's justice, let it be here. But you know, I I don't know about you, I love my comfort. So my inclination in those moments is to just kind of go back to the Christian cocoon. Sit on the couch and say, well, God is on the throne. He's got it taken care of. Jesus is coming back. Until then, I'm going to sit back. I got my own issues. I'm tired. But you know what I have? I have hope. The world needs that hope. The world needs our witness. The world needs the hope of the finished work of the cross and the reconciliation that comes with it. Not just with one another. No, the reconciliation with God that comes with it. Man, I'd argue that the reason we go in circles as societies and even civilizations with social movement after social movement, we're still struggling with this, is because we got to get that vertical reconciliation right first with our Father. And then we'll have reconciliation with our brothers and sisters. See, the world needs more than just our mental assent that the cross of Jesus was enough. The world needs us to do our part walk in obedience and carry our cross. The, the, the horizontal labor, the laboring to love our neighbor, to do justice, love mercy, bear one another's burdens, weep with those who weep. And as we carry our cross, as we work practically, may we forever point to the cross of Jesus Christ and the vertical reconciliation that we have with God. Right? May we forever point as we work horizontally. And may we forever point to the, the reconciliation we have through the cross of Jesus Christ as we bear that horizontal beam because that is how the cross will have glory in our lives. We'll be drenched in doxa, the glory of God, revealing himself through the finished work of the cross and the work we're called to all around us. But you know, we are gonna go into worship and then we're gonna have a time of prayer. But a couple things. If you hear about justification by grace through faith. Maybe that's a new term to you. Maybe you've, you've never responded to, to, to the gospel and the good news and what we talked about tonight. Maybe you want to know more. Maybe you want to respond right now. We're going to go into worship. David and I are going to be right here. Pastors David and I. And then we're going to go into a time of prayer. But I believe what Jesus said in the gospel is that when he is lifted up, right, all men will be drawn unto him. We know that he was lifted up on that cross but we're going to lift his name up in worship. And God, I pray that even now you would draw every heart unto you. 
I know in Philippians 2, it says that you went and obeyed God even to the cross so that every knee could bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. God, we worship you in that way tonight. It's how we're gonna close. But as we worship, I know the Holy Spirit still has work to do. And I simply ask, every week we're asking questions, two questions you can ask yourself. In my life, as I go about day to day, am I working for approval? Am I desperate for more approval when I really should be working from assurance that the cross is enough? I can't do anything to make God love me more. I can't do anything to make him love me less. Or have I drifted into legalism? Where it's like, I got, I got to grind to find God's love and his approval. Man, if you're bearing that weight, lay it down tonight. Embrace grace again. And secondly, the question we should ask is, have I, have I embraced vertical reconciliation with God, but forgot about that horizontal reconciliation I'm supposed to work towards? That beam I'm supposed to carry, the cross Jesus calls me to carry. Let's ask those questions. Let's let the Holy Spirit continue to do work here. We're not leaving, but could you stand here tonight? We are gonna step back into worship. We're gonna praise Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you said it is finished. Not I've done my part, now it's up to you guys, but it is finished. Jesus, we know we simply respond. So we respond tonight, we close in worship, we respond with praise, and we worship you in this place, Jesus.